Thank you everybody for coming. It's nice to see such a mix of people from uh, different areas of State College. I think we have some kids from high school, is that right? No? Some high school kids? No? We have some undergrads. Can I see hands? We have some undergrads, good. We have uh, some undergrads over there. We have some, uh, I know we have my former graduate student, Leah, here. Uh, I have some friends in the audience. Uh, thank you for coming. I have new friends in the audience, Bob, who's, all, who's here from Nebraska, and uh, some folks who I know live in the area and who come to these things. Thank you all very much for coming. I'm going to start by saying a few words um, about my poetry. I'm going to read a few poems, and then we're going to have a conversation, and we're going to go back and forth between the conversation and uh, my interjecting a few poems. So first, on the theme of identity. Most of my poems explore some form of identity, gender, class, race, religion, sexual orientation. Some tell stories, some of the poems. In fact, most tell some kind of story. Some poems have obvious forms, a villanelle, a tercet, um, a sestina, uh, rhymed quatrains. Some are in free verse, but even those in free verse make use of the tools of the poet's trade. Slant rhyme, internal rhyme, assonance, consonance, thinking about the sentence across the line break, uh, thinking about how many strong stresses you want in a line. Do you want to use a verb that has a hard consonant sound at the end? All of these are questions uh, as important to free verse as they are to formal verse. Um, for those who have read my work, you know I frequently use the first person with the understanding that I'm creating a character, uh, a Robin Becker, a speaker, who strongly resembles the Robin Becker who I think I am. But the selection and arrangement of detail always create a story that's partial. So the selection and arrangement of detail always, select, always create a story that's partial. We can't fit in all the details of a story. So the story of the poem is necessarily a subset of a larger story. So I hope we're gonna talk about some of the things that come up for you, both in terms of content and in terms of form uh, as I read some poems. Um, so I'm happy to talk about any subject at all. Uh, I'm gonna start with a poem called Old Florida. Students, pay attention. The story of this poem is coming to a theater near you in the future. <laughs> Old Florida. When the soon-to-be-famous hurricane hurried to their neighborhood, I begged them to leave. Rain made a cassoulet of the parking lot. Winds juggled giant palm trees like rolling pins. But they hunkered down. Children under desks in the 50s. The storm, their personal blitz. I cried, I screamed over the phone, but they rejected the generator-backed shelter I found. Chose canned goods and bunker. And I chose canned goods and bunker until the phone died and I consigned them to their neighbors, their luck, and their blood thinners. 
89 years old. They hid out on the ninth floor. Elevator out. Infrastructure crumbling. But more than death or thirst, they feared their daughter with her talk of evacuation. <laughs> Leaving home, even for natural disaster, made them refugees. Registrants in a vast and subtly documented conspiracy to remove them from their apartment to assisted living. <laughs> Neighbors found them sweating in their foxhole, delivered salami and crackers and ice. And when the power came back, they phoned me to report that hardship brought out the kindness in people. Wasn't it fortunate they stayed in their home? And where was my faith in human goodness? And I'll read one more and then I'll take questions or comments. This poem is called The Children's Concert. Once a month when I was 12 and my sister was 10, our mother would drop us at the Philadelphia Academy of Music for the Saturday children's concerts. We'd sit in the enormous dark hall with the other children, and I'd whisper to my sister that our mother was never coming back. <laughs> that she'd abandoned us there. That she was driving to meet our father and take a plane to Europe. <laughs> My sister called me a liar, and her eyes filled with tears. The musicians had started on Mozart, but I was whispering about how we would feel when all the other kids had gone home, and we were left standing in our navy blue winter coats on that grim Philadelphia Street. I did not know then that I would grow to love the 18th century, that my sister would take her own life one winter day in Philadelphia, that childhood would be so final a thing. So we're going to start with those two poems, and I'm just going to ask for comments or observations or anything. Uh, from anybody in the audience. And as always, we have Chris on this side with a microphone, and I'm over here, so raise Good. your hand, and we'll just go back and forth between the different sides of the room. So if anybody is shy, I'm going to call on people, <laughs> <laughs> the ones I know. There we okay. go. <laughs> we'll start over here. Uh, now, you commented on childhood as a final thing, but it sounds like you're still carrying it with you, and you're still uh, thinking about it as you go on through life. So. I mean, sounds kind of contradictory. That's where memory comes in. What's your name? Matt. Matt. Matt raises a very important point. You know, I had a friend in graduate school who said to me once, if somebody shut her up into a room, she would have enough material to write for the rest of her life. <laughs> and I thought, I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way at all. She thought that her childhood had so much material that she could spend the rest of her life mining it for stories. And you're absolutely right that, in fact, uh, the, the speaker believes her childhood ended, but her memory of it and her recapitulating and rethinking 
its significance goes on forever. That's a very good observation. Well, uh, you brought up memory. Um, I know my mother now in her later years swears she would back me all the way to go to college and was behind me all the way to go to get my education and all that. And all I remember is all the fights about her saying, <laughs> no one needs to get married if they're, you know, you're going to get married anyway. No one needs an education if you're a woman. And I was just, just you brought that out, that memory of her memory is not my memory of what reality was. And do this poetry, I guess it doesn't matter if it's a real reality as long as it's yours. I'm going to read a poem for you. <laughs> in response to that. <laughs> What's your name? My name's Donna. Donna. Okay, this is a poem for Donna. It's called Late Words for My Sister. So now everybody knows that the speaker of these poems had a sister who died. So, late, this is from a later book, Late Words for My Sister. You did not want to remember with me how he raged up the stairs, unbuckling the black leather strap we called the belt. <laughs> how our four thin legs danced up and down on the bed like the jointed limbs of marionettes, while the burning lariat of his anger seared our legs how his face blazed and his eyes glowed as he took the whip back in a tight circle to strike again and again. We begged him to stop. Remember? And when he relented, panting like an animal that has run a great distance, he paused. And we could see the sweat on his lip and under his arms. He hung there his bulk suspended from his shoulders by a power greater than he. And as we crept past him, he slapped me hard across the face, sparing you that humiliation because you were weak and the youngest and had only followed my example into evil doing. I tried to make myself small to pass him or no, I'm remembering wrong. Maybe I sneered. Maybe I had not yet learned to cower before the bully, to bare my neck, to admit when I had lost. How surprised you would be to see him now, an old man checking the price of milk at the supermarket against the price in his head. The difference is a conundrum, a fracture in continuity, the way his daughters broke from his plan. So in this poem, the speaker is aware of her own misremembering um, and acknowledging that she's directly speaking to the sister, encouraging the sister to remember, to remember that which she does not want to remember. So in fact, the poem becomes a container for all those different ways of dealing with memory. Does that kind of work with what you're talking about a bit? 
Yeah, it just was just a thought that came to me when you spoke of memory. You know, I was actually going to say something else when Go you ahead. spoke of memory. <laughs> well, uh, I was noticing how dramatically you, you read the poems. I mean, in your opinion, should poetry be read in your head or read aloud? I, I know sometimes I've heard people read poetry that their voice and mannerisms, I thought, detracted from the words. How do you feel about that? I feel that every poet needs to find a kind of performance style that suits that person. And when I was a young poet going to poetry readings, <coughs> excuse me, um, when I was a young poet going to poetry readings, I saw everything from, because they are secretly and then on Saturday, in fact, following the darkest in technology, we doubt our. And I thought, I don't want to do that. And then I saw people who were very performative. And uh, I kind of, I'm a big believer in copying from good models. Um, so I have my students copy um, from good models. And I believe in copying from good models. Because I don't think I'm going to reinvent a good performance. I think I can recognize what I think is a good performance and then try and do it. Some people would say, I'm too dramatic. Some people would say, well, why don't you just read the poem and let other people interpret it? And some people might feel that way. Uh, this is the style that I've evolved over time. But there are all sorts of poetry performance styles. Absolutely. Good point. More questions? On this side? OK, we have one right over here, Robin. Good. I just have a comment. I just want to say how much I appreciate that that they have your poems in the faculty staff newsletter that we get, and I I look forward to it every time, and I go down and open it up, and so enjoy your your poems. Well, that makes me feel so good because last spring, on the hottest days, the last four hottest days of the year, I went around with a Penn State videographer, and we videotaped those those, we did 30 poems. Three takes on each poem, so that's 90 takes. Uh, three takes because he had one camera and he tried to get different angles, and so we did each one three times. So it makes me feel very good to know that somebody looks forward to them every week. It's gonna continue all of next semester too because I said I, I wanted something that would be regular. That They asked me if I would do an occasional video, and I said no. No, nothing occasional. We want to come up with a regular plan that people can count on and see week after week after week. So that makes me feel so good to hear that. Everybody, if you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about Penn State Live. You can click on and type in The Poet's Perspective, and a poem comes up, my reading a poem, talking a little bit about it, and asking a question for you to think about. Are they archived? Are they archived? I think they are, and I'll also add that when we recap today's event on our website, which is rps.psu.edu, we will put a link to um, the the uh, poet's perspective oh, videos. Yeah. Thank you. I'm sure. Other more, comments? More comments? All right. Thanks. I I'm one that probably came the farthest to listen to you. So it's very, very <laughs> interesting to me, okay? And also, having met you for the first time only an hour ago, 
when you wrote any of these, or specifically the last one that you read, do you find that it all comes out in one lump sum setting, or it comes out in pieces, or it comes out where you have to revise, revise, revise? Bob's question about composition is an important question for anybody who's composing anything, whether it's an essay, a short story, a poem, uh, the question of composition. Um, my poems come out in a whole variety of ways. Uh, often I sit down to work with a phrase in my head with which I start, and it could be that I'll just do my free writing and I'll fill up a couple of pages. And from that couple of pages, I'll have some material that I hang on to. Almost never do I get an entire draft in one sitting, but I will read you a poem in which I did. Um, it's very short. <laughs> um, most of my poems require extensive revision because when I sit down to work, my best stuff does not come up first thing. Mary Oliver has this great expression. She talks about uh, your mind making a date with your butt. And that means getting into the chair at the desk. And eventually your imagination knows your body is going to show up. So if you create a kind of regular writing schedule for yourself and you block out the time, and I think Mary Oliver is right because at the end of the school year, after I put in my grades, and I head off to the place where I'm going to spend the summer writing, it's almost as though my imagination and my body know this is my writing time. And I will show up every day in that chair, and I will block out that time, even though many days I don't come up with something I'm going to hold on to. It doesn't matter. I have the practice. And if I keep doing it on a regular basis, I know that eventually I will come up with material that I can use. So this is a long story to get to. Uh, sometimes I start with a phrase, and I get some material I can use. Sometimes I go off on a tangent. The stuff goes in a file. It wasn't where I thought I was going. Sometimes uh, I come up with stuff that's compelling enough for me to sit down the next day and go back to what I got the previous day. Um, so almost never do I get a whole poem in one sitting. But I will read you the short poem in which I did. Uh, this poem, I wanted to write about a romantic betrayal. Uh, and I tried very hard to tell it as a narrative. First she did this, then I did that, then she did this, then I, I couldn't get it. Um, I, tried to, I tried to tell it as a story. Everything failed. Well, then I decided that I was going to try, and I had been, this is talk about models. I had been reading the poet Jane Hirschfield. Some of us have read the poet Jane Hirschfield, haven't we? <laughs> Okay. So I had been reading the poet Jane Hirschfield who writes these very tiny little poems. No explanation. And I thought, I've never been able to do that, but I'm going to try. I thought, I'm going to tell the story of this betrayal simply by images. So this is what I came up with. 
Of course, you had to have been, it, this is also based, the image even is based on personal experience because it's based on the physical house in which I live. Okay, it, the poem is called Her Lies, L-I-E-S. Okay, so concentrate on the image. Carpenter bees continue to pock the fascia boards. The fascia boards are the boards on the house, right? Some homeowners are nodding, okay? <laughs> Carpenter bees continue to pock the fascia boards, drill the wood into runnels of connecting troughs. Humming above me, they debride the gallery, disappear inside. They say these bees can hollow out a house before anyone comprehends the tiny piles of dust almost invisible on the floor. So the image is that these carpenter bees are hollowing out the house, the owners don't even know, and by the time they notice the little piles of dust on the floor, it's too late. But the poem is called Her lies. So the she appears nowhere in the poem. I'm trying to tell the story through the image itself. And that was a poem. I sat down, I had those carpenter bees, and I went to town with those carpenter bees. We have a question here for you. Yeah. My daughter Sophie's here and she wants to help you work. So can you, Sophie, you want to help? Is Sophie giving the mic? Do you think it is possible for the reader to give a better interpretation of a poem than the author had in mind? I think it's always possible that a reader will bring to a poem uh, his or her considerable experience. Uh, I, I guess I don't know better or worse, but I think a reader can bring his or her experience to a piece of work and uh, certainly enhance its meaning, enhance its meaning and its value for that reader or, or listener. Uh, I'm only one person with my particular set of phrases and language. I call it a word hoard, H-O-A-R-D. Everyone has her own word hoard, his own word hoard, and we can work with the material that we have inside us. So everybody brings his or her own experience to whatever. Uh, but I, I'm, in, I'm always interested to hear if somebody has a vastly different understanding of a poem. Chris, how about on your side? Anybody over there? Yes. Um, this isn't going to be an easy answer, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Okay. Just hold the mic a little closer to your mouth. Thanks. Sorry. There you um, go. When you're writing a poem in which the speaker has a lot of emotion, like, well, the Carpenter Bees one, you used an image, but in the other ones where it's more narrative, how do you find almost that detachment to be able to write about it without making it drizzling with emotion? Um, I'm just going to repeat so everyone can hear it. How do you write about very emotional subjects while keeping a sense of detachment so you can get the poem out, is, is what I understood right. her to be asking. Um, for me, uh, the answer to this question is one of life's great mysteries. So I'm dodging the question in that sense. Because how you regulate 
your emotional distance from the experience in order to find the language that's not going to make it sound sentimental like a Hallmark card is, is very tough. And I navigate that distance with every single poem. And you're right, when you're working with the image and you're taking the story and putting the story aside, then you have the clarity of the image doing the work for you. Uh, when you're telling a story, for example, that poem, Late Words for My Sister, I had to work very hard to try and straddle what I thought was uh, a reasonable telling of the tale and yet not over-interpreting for my reader uh, the emotional content of the events. Um, so I think that's a very difficult... Wordsworth talked about poetry being emotion recollected in tranquility. And I think Wordsworth was absolutely right. If you write from the molecules like this, you don't have the tools you need to think clearly. Um, for example, after my sister's death, I wrote uh, a lot of poems, uh, most of which I never did anything with. They were mostly poems for me, working out my feelings. Years later, I was able to write poems in which my sister's death appeared, uh, which I thought were really poems. But at the time, and for five years, I could not. So it took me quite a while to have uh, emotion recollected in tranquility. I didn't have that tranquility. And so the topic was too hot for me to handle. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Back to this side of the room. Okay. Okay, right over here. Robin, do you uh, read requests? Sure. Roast chicken. Okay. <laughs> Roast Chicken is the last poem in my book, All-American Girl. The Roast Chicken. When I wrote this poem, I thought I was going to write a series of poems. The Roast Beef, The Roast Turkey, <laughs> The Roast Lamb. <clears throat> but in fact, I only did the chicken. The Roast Chicken. When I set the roast chicken in the center of the table and sat down alone to eat, I understood the meaning of my life. That morning when I squirted the lousy Cambridge water into the coffee pot, I knew why my sister took her life. The first night I ate the roast chicken in honor of couples, in honor of the labor and elegance of compromise. The second night, I ate the roast chicken, weeping with self-pity, because I had no partner to designate on my health plan form, should I become incapacitated, my life sustained solely by machines. The third night, I picked at the chicken and considered how my life has been a flight from family and how I've arrived at middle age without one. Who will remember with me the old North Broad Street train station? Who will bike with me to the drugstore in Mount Airy for my sister's medication? Who will know the hatred I harbored for my father who could not tolerate noise? And who will love me now that I have become him, a person who cannot tolerate noise? 
who will ask me about the Saturdays I wandered around Chestnut Hill, PA, my senior year in high school with a little money in my pocket, looking at earrings and developing expensive taste. Now I watch my neighbors kneeling in the early November cold to plant their spring bulbs. Their faith amazes me, for today I understand that by such deeds, human goodness is recognized. All week, the brick streets of Cambridge have been saying goodbye, quietly hushed by leaves, like a lover who knows it's over and speaks kindly finally in a cafe before she disappears. And you're left knowing that she was your best chance, though she would say your best chances are the ones you take. Uh, also, memory, this poem also has to do with memory. Who will remember with me? A poem that kind of reaches out in the, notion, in the world of memory. Marilyn, why did you want that one? It's very dear to my heart. Thank you. Okay, uh, on your side, Chris. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, can, yeah. can they hear you? Yeah. More to the point. Okay, that's better. I'm um, going off of Christine's question about emotional distance. I noticed that you use humor in a lot of your poems. And I wondered if you use that as a tactic to um, carry the emotional weight of a poem, and if you could speak a little bit about how you get to arrive at if you want to use humor in a poem or not. I love it when I can actually use humor effectively in a poem. And sometimes I can, and sometimes I can't. Um, but I do think it's a really great, effective tool for bringing people in. I think um, people don't like to be lectured to. People like to laugh together. People like to recognize things together. <clears throat> and innate poetics, such as mine, which seeks to be inclusive, though I talk about difficult subjects. I talk about my sister's suicide. I talk about uh, being a lesbian. I talk about being Jewish. I, I try and talk about subjects which are somewhat uh, difficult for some people. Uh, I do it through a poetics of inclusion, and humor is absolutely one of those tools. Yes, and sometimes I realize I think I'm being funny, but it's not funny to somebody else, <laughs> so it has to go. It, you know, I can't use it. It has to be fun has to be a humor that reaches out. That's a really good point. Totally. But test out your humor on other people. Don't just think because it's funny to you, it's going to be funny to other people. Told you we had great questions for you, right? Yeah, we have good questions. Okay, well, um, back to this side. Anybody over here? And there they do can be comments. There's somebody back there. Somebody over here? Okay. In the back. We'll get to you as well. You're next. Way. Okay. Here we come. Um, I want to get back to the uh, your father and the belt. Did he use the belt 
totally open or did he fold it? And, uh, what an astute listener. <laughs> wow. That was very astute listening on your part. Well, you're the first person I've ever met who, uh, whose father uh, used a bell. Uh, I'm sure you've known other people. They just haven't written about it. <laughs> and my father used it doubled up. And, uh, and it seems to me that uh, when you're flinging it out totally open, you have to use a tremendous amount of force. I think it would have been much more wearing to do it that way. And uh, he would have to have been uh, very strong or very angry. And it occurred to me when I was, and by the way, I don't remember any single incident. I don't remember what the occasion Back was. Back to memory. This is so interesting how everything is tying together. Yeah, yeah. you don't remember a single the occasion. Right. But I know, I remember definitely that he did it. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, I've realized that he was doing exactly what his Sicilian father did to him. This is what you do, you punish him that way. And I don't, and I do think there are far worse things parents can do, because one thing, and I was just talking to my brother about it the other day, my parents at one point, just before Christmas, there was a room where all the presents were. They decided at the dinner table, I had gone in there and opened a gift. I'm the middle child. I had not. They said, he did. The whole family, all five of us, went up to that door. Dad said, open the door. I said, I can't. Well, of course I could. But what I was trying to say is I didn't. Mm -hmm. And so he got me, he got me in the chest, got me over the chest, said, there, you see, you did. And I have been haunted by that ever since. And you know what? It occurred to me as an adult, that gift was to my brother. So <laughs> I'm after my brother. I said, you did that. <laughs> he totally doesn't even remember the incident. That's right. And I'm haunted by it. <laughs> Uh, here, here's an answer to that story. When, uh, when this book, The Horse Fair, was about to come out, I got, a, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who owned a bookstore in New York City, and she said, uh, I happen to know that your book is going to get reviewed by the New York Times. And I said, how do you know? And she said, I'm a bookseller, and I know all the book reviewers in town, and I even have a copy of it right here. <laughs> and I said, well, will you read it to me? And she said, yes. And it was one of those short reviews, like in brief, in the Times. So she read me the review. The only poem in the whole book that the reviewer mentioned is the poem I just read you called Late Words for My Father. So she praised the book, but that was the poem she quoted from and talked about. So when I heard that, I thought, oh, this is going to be a problem for my parents. <laughs> so I, I, I called a friend of mine who was a psychologist, and I said, what do you think I should do? And she said, here's what I would do. I would call my mother, who had, who had read the poem, actually. I had read the poem to my mother. Call my mother, ask her if she wants to hear, hear the review, read it to her, ask her if she wants a copy. And I did that. I called her. I read her the thing. She said, oh, Robbie, I'm very happy for you but this is going to upset your father. And I said, do you want me to send you a copy? She said, yes. So I sent her a copy, and two weeks later, I got a phone call from my dad. And he said, hi, Rob, it's dad. Listen, I saw that thing you wrote. So he was a little confused. He, he didn't realize I wrote the poem, not the review. <laughs> anyway, he said, I saw that thing you wrote. And he said, and I, I, I can't remember.
remember what I ate for breakfast this morning. So if I hit you when you were little, I'm sorry. But I can't remember if I did or I didn't. Anyway, here's your mother. I love you and you love me and that's all that matters. Here, here's your mother. So that was, that was as far as we got in uh, the kind of family negotiation about memory and truth. Did he... This, this gentleman had yeah, a question, and then I'm trying to how did you feel question. about Oh, you got to remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do remember. How did you feel about the response? How did I, this woman has a question, how did I feel about that response? Well, I felt mixed. On the one hand, I thought, that's the best apology you can give me? I thought, first. And then I thought, well, life has gone on, and he's had his life, and I've had mine and I've been able to make art out of my life. And I'm grateful for that opportunity. And uh, this, is his, this is the best apology he can give me, and I accept it. And the review came out in the New York Times, and no one saw anything. <laughs> there was no fallout. And this gentleman uh, has I'll, okay, I'll try to be funny. Um, I'm sorry you were chicken about not continuing with the roast beef. <laughs> <laughs> That's for someone else. <laughs> <laughs> How about another one on this side? Then? We'll come back here. Leah. Okay. Robin, you were talking about memory and truth, and I was wondering if, as you write um, and have to kind of craft language and think about what you're trying to per persuade us to understand uh -huh. through your um, through your poetry, if you find yourself um, understanding more and more about that your identity and that memory as a result of writing or how that works for you if that attention to language clarifies things for you i think spending the time on any subject deepens your experience of that subject and as leah pointed out crafting the language to make it something beyond a simple narrative takes you also another level deeper. So I would say absolutely. Absolutely the attention to language, the time you spend crafting. Uh, sometimes, in fact, the poem strays a bit from the truth, and I'm aware of that. And that's interesting to me, too, because the poem has a direction it wants to go. Uh, which isn't necessarily tied to what actually happened, and that's fine with me, because actually I'm making something out of my experience for someone else. I'm not writing this poem for myself. I'm writing this poem primarily, my audience, is college students, uh, frankly, because college students are the ones who get assigned my books in their classrooms. <laughs> and only when I give a reading where books are for sale do other people get a chance to buy the books, because how are they going to know about my work? There are hundreds of thousands of poets in this country. Um, so yes, I think that sense of I'm making something for someone else uh, takes me deeper into the experience and frees me at the same time. Frees me to think of it as crafting an object for a life outside of myself. Good question. If there are no... Uh, we do have another question. You have a question. Okay. Well, I, I, I guess in the thing about memory, and um, for for my mother, 
what happened and what she thinks happened is her reality now. Right. Now, when, when we get into this uh, in the family situation, some of my sisters get angry that she doesn't remember the mm -hmm. reality that we do. Sure. And I've just said, well, that's what she remembers. That's the way, you know, and it's better for her that she does remember life that way. Mm -hmm. And you just move on. I mean, and I guess all of us craft our life that way. Absolutely. You know, the layers that we put over for protection. I, I think it's sort of like maybe the poems is kind of like giving birth. If you really, really remembered, we'd all be only children. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, what's your name? Donna. As Donna said, we're all kind of writing the narratives of our own lives, whether we're literally writing them or just telling ourselves the stories of our lives. We're always in the process of doing that at every age. And I think you're absolutely right. We all carry around the narratives that feel most truthful to ourselves. And sometimes they might not match our siblings who grew up in the same house and had the same parents and weren't that far apart from us in age. And still, our memories are very, sometimes very disparate. And this is an interesting phenomenon, I think. It's a really interesting aspect of human existence and uh, how we make sense of our experience. This might be a good moment to read another poem or two. Sure. Um, animals appear a lot in my poems, um, and uh, particularly dogs. Um, why? Dogs are ubiquitous in our world. Uh, they live in our homes, they sleep in our beds, they sit on our laps. We feed them, we take them to the vet, we take them out to pee and poop, and mostly we bury them. And uh, I have been really interested in seeing uh, the intimacy that we have with our domestic animals that some of us have even with larger animals like horses. Um, so I'm going to read a poem uh, about my relationship with a particular dog. Okay, Tucker. Some people in this room actually knew Tucker. Joan and Marilyn. Okay, Tucker. Okay, Tucker, you win. My arm got tired of throwing the ball before you got tired of scrambling up the riverbank to fetch it. Okay, Tucker, you can come too. Since you opened the door with your clever snout, I'm not about to shove you back in. You win the beauty contest, the most finicky eater award, and the like a dog with a bone prize. You win the first one in the car sweepstakes. Look, Tucker, we had no choice when we squared off in your adolescence. We had to get along. It was a live and let live situation, both of us in love with her. Okay, I bribed you with biscuits and rides. You conned me with a handshake and a smile. Remember hide and seek in the cornfield, the jack in the pulpit, the lady slipper, 
That week at the beach with smelly gulls wrapped in slime and tangled lines of seaweed and a pen of chickens. You had it made, but no. Old girl, you chased the phantom squirrel up the slope again and again, returned slack-jawed, refused to come off the porch, stood your ground in freezing November rain, showed your dog's teeth when I showed my human fear, and for good measure ran circles around me when I was her woman, but you were her dog. <laughs> Maybe I'll read another dog poem to compliment that one. So many dogs, so little time. <laughs> this poem is really, it's, it seems to be about a dog, but it's really about prejudice. Uh, because um, this is the story of a dog which uh, came to me because uh, my partner's sister asked my partner if she could take care of this dog for a year. And I saw this dog, which was an enormous basset hound, and uh, I was very dismayed. I did not want this dog for a year. I was very prejudiced against this dog for any number of reasons, which the poem will detail. Um, and of course, this is a story of a journey, an emotional journey. Uh, I started out not wanting this dog in my life, and this is what happened. In praise of the Basset Hound. This unlovely dog, with warts and a terrible stink common to the breed, legless as a walrus, teaches me to pursue my life with devotion. Steadfast enthusiast of Fisher Cat and Vole, she relies now almost entirely on scent and sings her hound's song of pleasure when we come close enough for her to hear her name. In snow above her shoulders, she tracks our skis when all we can see is her metronome tail tipped in black, sweeping the horizon a mile back. We keep her incontinent in an old shed behind the farmhouse, a wire fence around her run. Warm days, nose in the air, she sits like a retiree in the sun, listening to warblers build their spring nests. Her warts ooze, her eyes rain green phlegm. Still, I kiss her and hold her against my breast. She who whelped 12 litters before someone took pity and bought her from the breeder. Never permitted to lick hand or face, she will not disgrace her training and extend her tongue in play, though I offer my cheek. Daily, she shows me the meaning of character loping painfully on swollen paws. I apply salve to her scaly folds. I croon over her. Who among us has not been moved by the magnificence of mute creatures in their abundant dying 
skin. So at the end of that year, the sister said, I'm ready to take my dog back. And I said, no, <laughs> the dog stays. And she said, we had an agreement. So we all piled in the car and drove to Ann Arbor. <laughs> Me thinking, when we get there, I'll convince her to let us take the dog back. <laughs> and of course, I lost, and the dog went back. <laughs> but I had learned my lesson, and I had written my poem, and I had come to love a creature I didn't think I could love, which taught me a lot. <clears throat> More thoughts, comments, questions? How, how, how does it work if other people read these poems of you that are experiencing thoughts? Do they give the same expression to the reading? The, the question is, how does it work if someone's just reading it in the book rather than have, well, hearing even it? Even if they read them aloud. Well, let's ask somebody who has. Melinda, can you answer that? Um, How's it different reading some of these poems on the page? Let's give Melinda a mic. She knows my work as well as... I think both experiences are very worthwhile, and I love hearing Robin read her work. And then other poets, um, I think when you're reading in a book, you bring your own experiences more to the poem, and it, it, it is a different experience. And when you hear Robin read, you hear more, uh, like through her intonation, what her intention is in the poem. And when you're on your own reading it in the book, you bring more of your own experiences, and you kind of imagine what they might intend. And there are many levels of meaning, so I think both are very worthwhile experiences. Yeah, I think it would be quite different. You can find all my books uh, used on Amazon. Just where it says new and used, it says six used. Just click on the used. <laughs> Robin. Oh. Yeah. I Sorry. just want to ask, yeah. uh, in those poems that appear in the New Yorker, would they ever approach you and ask uh, to submit a poem for, say, some subject? Or have you ever had that experience? or? Are there any other publications that would ask you to uh, publish something in, along some line that they would be interested in? Or so actually, did everyone hear the question? It's a very good question. Okay. Now, I can't speak to the New Yorker, but I can speak. This question had to do with, um, does a journal ever come to a poet and say, would you write something on this particular <coughs> subject? So I'm going to tell a story, and I'm going to read a poem. <laughs> Several years ago, um, a man named Roger Kamenitz was the poetry editor for a newspaper in New York called The Forward, which was a Jewish publication. So he was calling some of his poet friends to get poems that he could put in his journal. So he called me and he said, Robin, do you have any unpublished poems with a Jewish theme? And I said, Roger, all my poems with a Jewish theme have been published, of which I have many. And he said, okay, thank you, and we hung up. And I thought, I hate to be a Jewish poet without a Jewish poem. <laughs> so it really bothered me that he had asked me for a poem and I didn't have one. So then I wrote this poem fairly quickly so that I could submit it to Roger, because I thought, I don't want him to like forget about me in the meantime. So I wrote this poem, which appeared in his magazine. Uh, I sent it with 
four other poems knowing that this is the one that he would want. You know, I try, you know, you submit it in a group, but I knew which one he was going to go for because I really wrote it for him. It's called The New Egypt. And of course, we know Egypt is the place where the Jews were slaves, uh, so that plays into this one. It's a very short poem, but it does make use of <coughs> biblical information. The New Egypt. I think of my father who believes a Jew can outwit fate by owning land. Slave to property now, I mow and mow. My destiny, the new Egypt. From his father, the tailor, he learned not to rent, but to own, to borrow, to buy. To conform, I disguise myself and drag the mower into the driveway, where I ponder the silky oil, the plastic casing, the choke. From my father, I learned the dignity of exile and the fire of acquisition. Not to live in places lightly, but to plant the self like an orange tree in the desert and irrigate, irrigate, irrigate. And of course, the orange trees in the deserts uh, is an allusion to to Israel, right. So we have Egypt and Israel in the poem, and uh, that's, a, that's a contemporary song. It's a little 14-liner. Robin? Yes? As we near the end oh. of our hour, unfortunately, yes. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the Penn State Laureate uh, program and your sure. experience as Laureate, what you're doing traveling around, I know, too. Sure. Yeah. I'm the third Penn State Laureate. The first was Kim Cook. Uh, the wonderful cellist we have here at Penn State. The second was Anthony Leach, who's the uh, director of the choirs. So they had two people from the School of Music, and then they uh, dipped into the College of Liberal Arts to get a writer. And uh, I'm hoping that they'll get somebody from the School of Visual Arts next time so that we can spread around this opportunity. Um, uh, when I was um, meeting with the committee, uh, when they were deciding um, upon their selection, I said that one of the things I wanted to do uh, as Penn State Laureate was to visit the remote campuses. And uh, I said I wanted to do it in fall semester, so I didn't have to be driving in bad weather. So I worked it out with my department head, and uh, this semester I, have, I will have visited 14 campuses by the end of the semester, um, starting in Beaver and Greater Allegheny. Um, Last week, I was in Brandywine, Abington, Lehigh Valley, and Berks. And next week, I'll be um, at uh, Mount Alto, York, and Harrisburg. So one of the things I wanted to do was go to these campuses. Uh, one thing I, I did uh, was ship a box of books. Uh, I let the professors choose which of these books they wanted. A box of books was shipped to a class. Everybody got a book for free. As long as the professor was willing to spend some time talking about the poems, then I appeared in the class. So I've met with many classes of students who've had a chance to read um, in conjunction with their own writing. <clears throat> uh, I give a reading. I meet with faculty and students. Sometimes I meet with the LGBT group on campus. Uh, I've tried to let the campuses kind of tailor my visits to their particular campus culture, whatever they needed. Um, so I've met with uh, chancellors and 
Uh, I have lots of, lots of meetings with students, student lunches, um, and then usually a public reading uh, in which people in the community are welcome. So that's been nice for people, um, adults in the community to come. And then there's a, a, a book signing and a reception afterwards. So that's what I've been doing. Uh, in addition to the videos, uh, there are 30 videos which I taped last spring. I'm doing these trips. Uh, January 14th, I'll be doing um, the Penn State Forum. Uh, I'm doing something for the Hintz Alumni Center in February. Uh, in April, I'll be reading as part of our MFA program reading series at the English department. So I've tried to set it up so that my travel is all in fall semester and my stuff at University Park is in spring semester. Um, so that's, that's how I've kind of conceived of the laureateship.